Welcome to Living Love, the radio broadcast ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Benton, Illinois. Our desire is to live love to God, to others, and the nations. We hope this week's broadcast will bless and encourage you. Now, let's dive into God's Word and see how we can live love today. I want to tell you about a game, a card game. I've got four decks of cards, two blue, two red. We're going to put them on a table. We pick a card from either of the four decks, either blue or red. And when you pick a card, you will either have a positive card that will give you money, or you will have a negative card that will take money from you. Okay? So, we're going to put these cards out, and we're going to play that game. How do you think you would do? I don't think I would do very well. But interestingly enough, there was an experiment done by the University of Iowa where they did this very game, and they brought in real gamblers to come in. And the point of the game was so that they could figure out how we process information and how we make decisions. So they brought these gamblers in. They got the four decks of cards, two blue, two red, and they began to figure out Uh, Let the gamblers play and figure out the game. And how do you win at this game? Now, what the gamblers didn't know, but I'll tell you inside, is that the game was rigged. You see, the, the researchers made it where only if you chose the red side would you ever win. If you chose any from the blue side, you would lose. But the gamblers didn't know that. They wanted to see if they could figure it out. And not only did they want to see if they could figure it out with their heads, they wanted to see how long it would take. They also wanted to put some diodes on their, on their palms. You know how when you get uh, nervous like, uh, or scared, your palms start to get clammy? Anybody ever had that happen to them? Yeah, sure. So that's going to happen when you get nervous or scared, when, when your unconscious knows that something's wrong. So they went ahead and put some, some tabs or something on their hands so that they could tell uh, when these guys maybe were getting nervous. Well, very interestingly enough... They did the experiment, and what they find out was this, that it took the gamblers, professional gamblers, about 50 cards to figure out that something was wrong. They couldn't tell what, was, what it was, but they knew something was amiss. Once they got to 80 cards, these professional gamblers had figured out the system. So 50 cards, that's about 25% of the cards available. That's how long it took them. And then by 80 cards, that's almost 40% of the cards available. They had mastered the game, and they knew that you only pick from one side to win. Now, I think that's pretty impressive. you got to be pretty smart to figure that out. I don't think I would have done it. What about the hands? They also put their hands to navigate that, trying to figure out if there was something underneath that they figured out early. Well, it took 50 cards for them to process the information and say something's wrong. It took 80 cards for them to say, I know what's wrong, and I know how to fix it. How long do you think it took for their hands to start getting clammy? And here's the interesting part about the, about the experiment. It took 10 cards. In 10 cards, subconsciously, something was off, and they knew it. They knew it even though they couldn't form the words, even though they couldn't describe what was going on, even if they didn't really feel like something was wrong. In 10 cards... Their brains, in whatever mysterious way our brains work, was able to recognize that there was something up that wasn't supposed to be. That's incredible. And so they, they make their, uh, you know, their, these scientists, they make their, their extrapolations. 
Maybe we don't use all of our brain. Maybe we're, uh, you know, smarter than we think. And, and the idea being that all of us make those kind of snap decisions. And we can do that. We don't know it, but we do. They make all of these extrapolations and all of these conclusions that they draw for this. I think that is the coolest thing in the world. But the one thing they didn't say, that when I read this story, I thought immediately, wow, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God has made you and made me in ways that we can't, we still, after all these thousands of years, we still don't really fully understand. He has shaped us and formed us. He has made us. And, and we're still finding out all these thousands of years later how truly special we are. And that's a testament to how greatly he loves us. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 139. This morning I want to talk about wonderful knowledge. Wonderful knowledge. And the wonderful knowledge that we are made in the image of God, the wonderful knowledge that God is always for us. We've sung about it already. Psalm 139. Let's read it together. Wonderful knowledge that helps us to know our place in this world. The psalmist writes these words, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I get up. You understand my thought from far away. You scrutinize my path. And my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all. You have encircled me behind and in front and, and placed your hand upon me. And, and such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot comprehend it. Let's just stop right there for a moment, shall we? And I want you to notice how all the subjects of all the sentences of this first part of Psalm 139 don't refer to us. They refer to God. And what that tells me is that if we want to find our place, if we want to fit in the grand scheme of the cosmos, if we want to know why we are here, we cannot begin with ourselves. We have to begin with God. You see, the psalmist says that God searches us and knows us. I don't know about you, but I fear for people to truly know me. I don't want you, we always have that barrier kind of up, you know, our persona, the face we put out to other people. The reason we do that is because we think that, well, if you really knew how terrible of a person I was, if you really knew how selfish I can be, if you really knew how much I think about me and not other people, you might not like what you see. And we're all of that, but we're fearful to, to search out others. We don't really want to know all their their, uh, that has to do about them. We don't want to know what makes them tick. We want to like to keep things on the surface level, but God's not like that. God searches us and knows us. He knows us at the most intimate level, and here's the great thing. He doesn't run away. He doesn't run away when he sees us at our most intimate. It's, no, it's, a, it's a big thing to be seen. One of the phrases that I hear uh, the young people saying today is, I see you. You heard that phrase? I see you. And the idea being that, that a lot of people are maybe working behind the scenes or maybe people who aren't out in front and that, that, that phrase, I see you, I know your value, I see what you're doing, I see you're doing good things, that's a great phrase. It means you're not without value. It means you're not without presence in the moment. And God sees you, he searches you and knows you. He sees when you, when you rise and when you lie down. 
That's one of the most intimate things about you. How many people in your life know when you lie down? And you may brag about getting up early, but only a couple of people probably know if you really do or not. God knows. God knows. And not only that, he knows your thoughts about the matter. He knows whether you talk, brag about getting up early or whether you really like to get up early. I like to brag about it. I hate getting up early. God knows that. He knows that about you. He knows that a mile away. That's what the psalmist says. He doesn't have to have a conversation with you to know what you're thinking. He is constantly aware of your thoughts even more than you are. Whoa. You hear that? This is the God the psalmist is describing, a God who's constantly more aware of your own thoughts than you are. It's incredible. And that would terrify us if the person sitting next to you knew you that well. Go ahead and look at the person sitting next to you. And just thank the Lord right now that they don't know you as well as God does. (laughs) Right? Otherwise, they'd be sitting over on the other side. But God knows you, and he doesn't mind to sit beside you. It's wonderful knowledge to know that there is a God who knows all about you and sees all about you and loves you still. Psalmist goes on to say, you, God, again, beginning with God, you, God, scrutinize my path and my lying down. You, God, are acquainted with all my ways, and even before check this. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all. This all-knowing God is not just aware of your thoughts. He, He knows your intentions. Look out. He knows your motives. Nobody knows your motives. God does. He can scrutinize your work and your rest. That's what the idea of the passage means. He can scrutinize your work and your rest. Have you ever used the phrase, I'm too tired, when you really just wanted to watch some TV? Have you ever uh, done something to or for someone just so they will be primed to do something for you later on down the road? Have you ever made somebody an offer they couldn't refuse? God knows that. God knows your motives. He knows what's behind your words, not just your words, but what's behind them. Have you ever outright lied to someone because the truth was just too much work? God knows that. He knows our motives. He saw it coming a mile away. That's what the scriptures say, from afar. Scripture tells us that you can't even voice the offer before God knows the who, the what, the where, and the how. That's how intimately God is aware of who you, who you are. And if, and if I knew you like that, that would be terrifying. That wouldn't be wonderful knowledge at all. It'd be, it'd be terrible knowledge. You would run from me like the plague. But again, since it's wonderful knowledge, God's not like me. See, what, what we do is we project ourselves onto God. We say, well, that's how I would be. If I knew all the secrets of the person sitting next to me, if I knew all the intents and the motives of the person sitting next to me, well, then I would have that knowledge which would give me power. And I would rule them like an iron-fisted monarch. But God ain't like that. He doesn't call people out and embarrass them in front of others like I would. 
He doesn't hold himself up as a paragon of virtue, even though he is like I would. He loves. How do I know? Well, listen to a couple of passages about speaking about God. Numbers 23, 19. Listen to these passages. God is not human. This is what the scripture says. Numbers 23, 19. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak? Does he not act? If he promises, does he not fulfill? Psalm 18 and verse 30, as for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless, and he shields all who take refuge in him. James 1 and 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow. Jesus, in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, calls the people there and us to look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Wow. Wonderful knowledge. In fact, the psalmist goes on to say in verse 6, look there, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot comprehend it. On my own, without God's spiritual enlightenment by his spirit, I can't even fathom how good God can be. The Bible says we see it as a mirror dimly, like through a dark glass. And I think that means on everything. That means also that when you imagine how, God, how good God is, he's better. When you imagine how wonderful he can be to you and to your family, he's more wonderful. You can't see how good he is because we're limited by flesh and by a sinful nature in this dark glass that keeps us not only from seeing the way things ought not to be, but the way things truly are. Wow. We will always default to gods like us on our own. We'll always default to projecting ourselves onto God on our own. Yet the Bible, from cover to cover, speaks of a God who loves people and only reserves hatred for the sin that would destroy them. The God we know from the Scriptures is a God that stops at nothing in order that we might come to know him in Jesus Christ. We don't have to play the game of thinking that God's like us. We don't have to play the game of projecting ourselves or our fathers or some other authority figure onto God. We know exactly who he is like. He's like Jesus. And it's so important that we know that that the Bible tells us twice from two different disparate authors Paul says it in Colossians 1 and verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 and verse 3 says, and he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the power of his word. Such knowledge is too wonderful. I cannot comprehend it on my own. I need spiritual enlightenment. It's so wonderful that it's hardly believable with our natural senses. And that is why we can only come to God in faith. We can only come to God with with belief and faith and trust in him and in his word because we can't even imagine how good he can be. That's just the beginning. You understand that? Jesus shows us how God is It's good news because God's not like us. And if God is really like that, if he's as good as the Bible says he is, we don't have to worry that he would ever be like us in our sin. We can trust him. 
wonderful knowledge. But that's not all in this passage. There's also wonderful presence. Look there in verse 7. We sang about this. The psalmist shifts. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you were there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, you are there. If I take up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will take hold of me. You see, God's not just an all-knowing God. He's also an all-present God. He's everywhere. There's no place that uh, that we can hide from him. And he's pursuing us. The psalmist describes the spatial conditions of our lives and says they cannot limit God's presence. Do you want to go up into the heavens? Do you want to escape his presence there? You can't. How about down into the grave? How about into the earth, in the depths of the earth? Nope, he's still there. And the psalmist waxes poetic and considers the dawning of the sun on the horizon or the remotest part of the edge of the sea. And I think there's a double meaning here because the sun rises on the horizon and you can never catch it. You take off after the sun at the horizon at that point, you can't catch it. The sea, when you look out at the sea, it seems like it goes on and on forever because you can never meet the sea at the point that you see in the distance. The horizon's always turning because the earth is round. When you arrive at the point you saw in the past, that horizon's at a different point. And there's a note of futility in this text of trying to get away from God. It's like like trying trying to catch the sun. It's like trying to get out and meet a point on the horizon. You can't hide from him. And even if you could, you can't, even if you could, he would be there too. See how different God's pursuit of us, God's presence around us is so much different than anything else we know or anything else we have. Name, I dare you to name a pagan God that moves and pursues you like our God. You can't. Just as his wonderful knowledge is unique to the God of the Bible, so also this wonderful pursuing love that never stops is unique to our Father. There's no God like that. Francis Thompson, an English poet, wrote a poem around the turn of the century, the 20th century, called The Hound of Heaven. And when you hear that sound, you may think, uh, or hear that name, you may think, well, I don't know about that. But remember, he's riding with, with uh, hounds that would go out into the into the the forest for hunting and things like that. And so he writes this great poem. It's 182 lines. I'm going to read all of them. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. 182 lines. Very long. But I encourage you to read it. You can catch it on on, uh, the internet. Here's the opening of the poem. Listen to it. I fled him. Down the nights and down the days, I fled him. Down the arches of the years, I fled him. Down the labyrinthine labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of many tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, up vistaed hopes I sped and shot, precipitated, adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, Deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, a voice beat more instant than the feet and said, all things betray thee who betrayest me. It's an incredible poem. I encourage you to read it. You want a military reference? You don't want to be poetic? Here's a military reference. God can outrun you and he can outgun you. 
Do you want a cultural reference? Fine. You can run from God, but you can't hide. He doesn't stop. He doesn't give up. You can reject him, but you do so at your own peril. He is Lord. He is, he is love, and he is coming at you, and you cannot dance around the spiritual truth. You cannot make it go away. It's true whether you believe it or not. He's on your scent, and it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And so the psalmist continues, look there in verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. If darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day, darkness and light are alike to you, this good God who knows you completely and pursues you tirelessly is not even thwarted by the darkness that might overwhelm you. In fact, in the darkest night, where we can only be overwhelmed and overcome. He is the only one who can meet us there without fear and empower. Hallelujah. I wish I could tell you more about him. He's not trembling at the darkness of your heart like you are. He is pushing back against the darkness by the light of his radiance of his glory. He is breaking the power of the darkness of sin by the effervescent lightning of blood-bought forgiveness. He turns dark nights of the soul into bright days of relationship with him through Jesus Christ. No, darkness is not dark to him. And that thing that's overwhelming you that dark place inside of you that's overwhelming me, it doesn't overwhelm him. In fact, he loves to meet you right there. He's not trembling at the darkness of your heart. That's why we pray at Christmas. That old Advent hymn, you know it, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We sing part of that text is that Christ, God in Christ would disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. And then what do we sing after that? Rejoice. Rejoice. Even the darkness is not darkness to him. He knows everything about us and loves us still. What wonderful knowledge. And there's no place we can hide from his omnipresent being. And that wonderful presence always meets us right where we are, even in the darkest of nights. What wonderful presence. And the psalmist concludes, verse 13, for you created my innermost parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. And I will give thanks to you because I am awesomely and wonderfully made. King James says fearfully. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. You know, I was praying about a passage to, to share today in the absence of uh, Pastor Roger. I'm grateful for the opportunity to do that. I didn't really know where to go. And God brought me here. And I think he brought me here to this passage to tell you things that you probably already know. Because in today's world, there's certainly a, I don't know, a zeitgeist. Something that, that kind of tells us as a culture that, that we're not special. That we're not important that we don't have value, and I think that I hear that from every corner of my vision and every corner of my hearing, that you don't have any value, that you're not important. And the more and more those voices crowd into my life, the more powerfully the voice of Jesus through his word shines through. 
And maybe this morning you're a person who might be struggling to find your place in the world. Maybe this morning you're a person who might be feeling devalued. Maybe you don't think that you matter. Well, I'm here to tell you today you do. And it's not that you matter to me. You do. But it don't matter if you matter to me. What matters is you matter to God. And that knowledge is too wonderful. And you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And you are woven together by God just the way you are. We're created awesomely. Don't think otherwise. You have value on the earth. You're special to God. He loved you so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He wove you together like a knitter weaves a blanket together in order to love you and be loved by you. How many knitters are out here? How many people know how to knit? Really? That's good. I don't either. And I'll tell you why I don't. Because it takes forever. And I have a very limited attention span. And knitting seems like, you know, a lot of bang for no buck. It's true. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. But I'll tell you this. What that, that woven, that's what it says there. You wove me in my mother's womb. And that word really kind of knitted together. It means that God takes his, takes his time with you. He doesn't throw you away so he can go get something else at Walmart like I might for a blanket. He weaves you together, and he's still weaving you together right now. You're not fully made yet. He's still working on you. He loves you as you are. He loves you where you are. But an awesome God like this loves you far too much to leave you like that. He is a consuming fire, the writer of Hebrews tells us. What does that mean? That means that his brilliant love is so powerful and so strong that it burns away everything that is not of him in your life. And that might hurt. It might. It might hurt like the surgeon's knife hurts. What happens after the surgery? though? You're healed. God's consuming fire burns away everything that's not of him until all that remains is the healthy wholeness of Jesus Christ with us in spirit. If you doubt him today, I ask you, do you know him? If you're struggling to find your place in this world today, I ask, are you starting with him or are you stuck on yourself? The God of whom the psalmist speaks is always and only good. He cannot be other. I'm gonna say that again. The God of who the psalmist speaks is always and only good, he cannot be other. That knowledge, that wonderful knowledge can be the beginning of a new life to someone today. This good, good father has his eye firmly set on you and on me and on nothing else. Maybe it's best to close this psalm, this preaching today, by making it a little more personal. I had a pastor, one of dear pastor in my life, still is, who used to take this psalm and uh, add, a, add his name to it to make it more personal. And I always thought, that's, that's really a great thing. I never thought to do that. And he did and made it really speak to me. Maybe we do that today. Maybe we can close by hearing this psalm personally. So it might read something like this. Lord, you have searched Greg. 
and you know Greg. You know when John sits down and when John rises up. You understand Ruth Ann's thoughts from far away. You scrutinize Sally's path and her lying down. You're acquainted with all of Michaela's ways. And even before there's a word on Paul's tongue, behold, Lord, you, you know it all. You have encircled Richard behind and in front. You've placed your hand on Jeremy. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us. It's, it's too high. We cannot comprehend it. Where can Mike go from your spirit? Where can Paige flee from your presence? If Gary ascends to heaven, God, you're there. If Jim makes his bed in the grave, behold, you're there too. If Janice takes up the wings of the dawn, if Chet dwells in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead Larry and your right hand will take hold of Ryan. And if Tim says, surely the darkness will, not, will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even darkness is not night to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you created Corbin's innermost parts. You wove Derek in his mother's womb. We'll give thanks to you because we are awesomely and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and our souls here this morning know it very well. Thank you for joining us for this week's broadcast of Living Love. If this message has impacted you in any way, please let us know. If you would like to contact us, find out more about our church, or if you'd like to support our mission, visit ibcbenton.com. That's I-B-C-B-E-N-T-O-N dot com.